This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 157 of Awards Chatter the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most interesting and talented actors of his generation, a 61-year-old who burst onto the scene 21 years ago with a tiny indie that he wrote, directed, and starred in, which brought him an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay to go with his Oscar nomination for Best Actor, and who hasn't stopped surprising and impressing people ever since, Billy Bob Thornton. Thornton, who was born in Arkansas and raised between there and Texas, came out west with dreams of becoming a musician, something that he ultimately did with his band The Boxmasters, but not before many years of struggle and hardship drove him towards acting and screenwriting as well. After a period of sporadic unemployment and even homelessness, he eventually began landing acting jobs on TV series, and then figured out that he could write better roles for himself than the sort others were offering him, which he did starting with the 1992 film One False Move, and then again with the movie that changed everything for him, 1996's Sling Blade. Sling Blade, which was made for less than $1 million, proved a critical and commercial sensation, which, along with its many accolades, turned Thornton, at the age of 41, into an A-lister. Two years later, he was Oscar-nominated again for his supporting performance in A Simple Plan, and he soon was starring in blockbusters like Armageddon and was married to Angelina Jolie. In 2001 alone, he starred in Barry Levinson's Bandits, the Coen Brothers' The Man Who Wasn't There, and Mark Foster's Monster's Ball, landing Golden Globe nominations for Bandits and The Man Who Wasn't There. And then in 2003, he appeared in two films that have become cult classics, Love Actually and Bad Santa. But what followed was a decade or so that was more hit or miss, with some critical and or commercial bombs like 2004's The Alamo and the 2005 remake of Bad News Bears. But in 2014, Thornton surged back to the top of his game as a twisted villain in the first season of Fargo, Noah Fowley's reimagining for FX of the Coen Brothers' 1996 film of the same name. Thornton, for his performance, was awarded the Best Actor in a Miniseries or TV Movie Golden Globe Award and was nominated for the corresponding Emmy. And in late 2016, he returned to TV and, for my money, was better than ever in the first season of the Amazon drama series Goliath, which was written and executive produced by David E. Kelly and Jonathan Shapiro, and in which Thornton plays a brilliant but unconventional lawyer named Billy McBride. For it, he already was awarded the Best Actor in a Drama Series Golden Globe Award earlier this year and is likely to receive a corresponding Emmy nomination in July. 
Over the course of a conversation in Thornton's trailer on the Raleigh Studios lot in Hollywood, where he was at work on the first episode of the second season of Goliath, Thornton and I discussed a wide range of topics. Among them, how shortly after he arrived in Los Angeles while working as a waiter at a private event, Billy Wilder, of all people, offered him some advice and encouragement that proved extremely valuable. How Sling Blade evolved over the course of a decade, from Thornton talking in the mirror to himself into a one-man show and then a Sundance short and ultimately a standout of the 1990s indie boom. How Thornton handled the sudden fame that came with Sling Blade's success, as well as the heartbreak that came with his subsequent directorial efforts, 2000's All the Pretty Horses and 2012's Jane Mansfield's Car. Why he feels pay cable and streaming now offer storytelling opportunities of the sort that indie filmmaking used to, and why he relates to his Goliath character as much as any that he's ever played in any medium, and much more. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Well, thanks so much for doing this. I guess, are you just right off the set of season two is that what's going on right now yeah yeah we just started season two last tuesday mm-hmm. and just got off tour with the box masters ah, with cool. our band yeah so that's that's what i was doing we've been home for about a month so i had a few weeks to you know adjust yeah. to uh this life yes yeah <laughs> well with with this podcast we go through the the whole story so it's been fun prepping and revisiting years of of profiles and things and we always just begin though with a, a basic where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living well i was born in hot springs arkansas then after high school i uh, moved to houston texas a uh, suburb of houston and then came out to california i've actually been in california for 37 years but back home my dad was a high school basketball coach and a history teacher and ultimately ended up working at a cable factory. And he passed away when I was 17, so I didn't have a lot of time with my dad. Mm-hmm. My mom, you know, really raised us, basically, and my, my, myself and my two brothers. I remember the job she had when, at one point when I was in elementary school. She was a telephone operator. That's back when you actually <laughs> had to talk to a telephone operator. Right, right. I mean, that's where I grew up, and at the time I grew up, music was everything. Music and sports, and for me it happened to be baseball. But I was around and old enough to have seen the Beatles on on The Ed Sullivan Show. Mm -hmm. 1964, I was eight years old when I saw the Beatles. But when we were eight, we were already ready to go. (laughs) I mean, you know, when when the Beatles happened, we... 
We didn't act like eight-year-olds. It's like, we want to do that. And my town, the town I grew up in, I was born in Hot Springs, but raised in a town called Malvern. And it was about probably nine or 10,000 people. And we had so many bands in that town. It was a really rich time. One of the things I'd read was just that it wasn't, as far as as far as just growing up was during those first seventeen years, and you know I'm not meaning to push the you know as much as you want to get into it, but just it wasn't smooth sailing the whole way, and and was that just sort of how that shapes shapes a guy when that's the beginning of your life? Oh yeah, I, yeah. I had you know my childhood wasn't exactly full of cash dollars and things <laughs> like that. So yeah, it, it, music was my. Refuge, yeah. you know, yeah. that's what I turned to, and and sports, but but music was really my thing, and I was one of those geeks who read every liner note and every record, you know, and knew all that stuff. So yeah, I was in bands all that all that way, and uh, that is where I always disappeared. So I started out in music and did it forever, and the only decade that I haven't really been active in music was in the '80s, and that's when I was starving to death and right. out here in LA in the beginning right. you know I had right. no means to do much of anything well definitely gonna ask you about that but really even before acting originally it wasn't music and acting it wasn't music and screenwriting it was music and baseball right that was you were yeah. a pretty good ball player and then had that had you not had some sort of a I guess it was like a freak thing you might have pursued that even further yeah, I mean, that was the idea. I was a junk pitcher in high school, and uh, I was pretty good. And I, I went to a Kansas City Royals traveling camp, and they never even got to see me, got to see me throw because I got my collarbone broken in their camp. Just like and, a stray ball. Yeah, stray ball. But when you look at it this way, let's say I was good enough to even get in the minor league system with some team, and uh, let's say I lasted two or three years in that, or let's say you made it to the majors somehow, you know. Mm-hmm. I would have been retired for, you know, 30 years now. <laughs> so when you think about it, I mean, as an actor and a musician, you can do it, you know, especially an actor. I mean, you can yeah. you can be 95 right. and do that. Right. So, yeah. Well, okay, so after the baseball was out of the picture, but before you left to go, I guess, New York or L.A., you were trying a lot of different things back, I guess, at this point in Texas, right? What were some of the things you were up to? You mean job-wise? Yeah, like a lot of physical labor, oh, right? Oh, gosh, yeah. Well, that was starting from the time I was 14. When I was 14, I hauled hay and then worked at a grocery store. That my family knew the, the guy that ran this little grocery store, and he had a farm, and I hauled hay out there in the summer. But I worked at a machine shop, a sawmill, a storm door factory, shoveled asphalt for the highway department, cut weeds for the county highway department, yeah, I did all kinds of physical labor jobs, drove a truck, worked with heavy equipment yeah. for a while, you know, all that stuff. And uh, Did you imagine that might be the long-term thing? I mean, for, for at any point, or you always knew you wanted out of there? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I never, I, I only had jobs because I had to have them. I, yeah. I, I didn't have a life goal of being a sawmill worker, <laughs> no. Uh, I always knew it was entertainment or sports for me. That was all I ever thought about. So who is Tom Epperson, and how did you guys know each other? And then I guess it was sort of a joint commitment to, to bounce town, right? Yeah. Tom was four years older than me, and so I was a kid that was picked on in the neighborhood. They were our neighbors. We lived on the poor street next to the more wealthy street, so our, our backyards almost adjoined there, you know, and Tom's dad was a judge there in town, and... 
So, you know, we, we didn't hang out much in school because, like I said, he was older than me. But then once I graduated high school, he and I started hanging out a little bit. So we were neighbors. Our mothers were best friends. So when he, he said he wanted to be a screenwriter and we went to New York first, he said, you ought to go with me. I didn't have anything else going on except for I think I was, you know, working for the county or whatever. And about what age would this have been for you? Uh, well, we went to New York when I was about 20, mm-hmm. I think. And we stayed 10 hours. It scared the hell out of us. So we didn't stay long. That was 1977. And and then ultimately, you know, we, we ended up coming out here together to California. And it was, uh, you know, pretty r- rough road for a long time. Well, let's, uh, if, if I can, I mean, really at that point, he wanted to be a screenwriter, but you were still interested in, in pursuing music out here. That was the primary thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought, well, I'll come out here and get in a band. I, I'd been in all those bands back home and toured. I'd worked as a roadie for several years. And so I'd been around, you know, the bigger world of music some, too, because our band opened for big names, and I roadied for some of those big names. So I'd, I'd been around it, but I got to L.A., and, you know, it'll kick your butt. <laughs> yeah, you, you learn pretty quickly it ain't that easy. And What year did you get out here? 1981, in uh, June of 81, I think it was. Okay, so I got to read back a quote from another interview. This was, this was you telling the interviewer, quote, The first six or seven years in California, I lived hand to mouth. I was homeless a couple of times. I just tended to park up with whoever would let me stay with them. So, yeah, it was a struggle. In the meantime, I guess, what were some of the things that you did to when you could get a job? And was there any point during those early years when you just were ready to go back or you were, it was worth sticking it out? Well, I always had this bizarre, I'm, I'm the most optimistic sort of pessimist in the world. <laughs> I, I always think that everything's going to get better. I don't know. I just have this thing. I mean, it's, I, I, in my words, uh, sometimes I sound, you know, like a pessimist sometimes, but I, I always have thought that things will work out, you know, and, I, and back then I did. I just thought tomorrow's the day, you know. Plus, I didn't have much to go back to, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, if I'd had some easy life back there, I would have gone back maybe. You never know. But there wasn't much to go back to, so I thought I'd as soon suffer out here as back there. I kept going, and, you know, things started getting a little better, you know, you know just a step at a time. But, you know, it was— For any uh, struggling actors, though, they, they should probably just—they'll appreciate hearing Shaky's— Pizza parlor. Oh that yeah, was one. yeah, I worked at Shakey's. Yeah, I did that for about a year and a half. And, and what uh, else? Some balloon configurations. Yeah, I worked uh, blowing up balloons for a party company. I worked <laughs> as a waiter uh, for a catering company. I sold ink pens over the phone up in the Taft Building at Hollywood and Vine for about two weeks. All all auditioning or things during the day. Is that yeah, what it was? Yeah, yeah, trying to get around auditions, and I got in a theater group and an acting class through a guy we met out here, and just thought I'd give it a shot because the guy said, "Hey, you ought to just try this," you know. Yeah. And then uh, Tom and I worked at one of those private mail receiving centers. He and I both worked there. It's right at by Greenblatt's Deli. Yeah. Uh, it's not there anymore, but Tom was the mail sorter. <laughs> And I was the I worked for the answering service. I answered the telephone for people that had a answering service right, and a mailbox right. there. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, one of the amazing stories I came across, which I hope you won't mind, you know, re- recounting for people who don't know it, is in the course of working for the catering company. There's an event at I guess Stanley Donnan's house, right? And you have an encounter that was actually pretty prophetic with a cool person. So maybe just. 
What happened and did it change anything for as far as your outlook, your approach? Oh, it absolutely did. Uh, yeah, I mean, the short version is I, I was working at, at uh, Christmas Eve for uh, this catering company. I was passing out hors d'oeuvres and I'd borrowed a tuxedo that didn't fit me. And this little guy with a sort of German accent starts talking to me and it turned out it was Billy Wilder, you know. And when I was talking to him, I'd you know, I knew who Billy Wilder was, but I didn't put the two together at the time. And cause there are a lot of people at that party, you know, uh, especially a lot of old Hollywood, like Sammy Kahn, the old songwriter, was there, who, you know, wrote a lot of famous songs. And uh, Dudley Moore was there and Debbie Reynolds and, you know, people like that. He said, so you want to be an actor? He got, I said, oh, how did you know, you know? And, <laughs> and I did. I wasn't clued into that whole thing about how actors are, right. are all waiters. But anyway, he he was talking to me about how it's such a hard road to be an actor. you got to get in line with everybody. He goes, if you can create your own way, you know, create your own characters, write your own stuff. He said, can you write? And I said, well, uh, yes, sir, actually, I've been doing some of that. And he said, write, do your own thing, you know, be different. Don't Don't just wait around, you know, to see if you get picked. And I started doing a one-man show in the theater and started creating my own characters and writing and all that. So and one of those yeah. characters, just to string it to what we're going to eventually come to, ended up being Carl Childers, right? Yeah, from Sling Blade. That was yeah, amazing. That's right. So yeah. now, when did it really start to get going? Because by the '90s, you're in a couple. You're a regular on a couple of of series. You'd already now had a screenplay, I think, with Tom that went and turned out nicely with one false move but pre-sling blade how did it how did it build up to that point well in the beginning i was doing these showcases for actors you'd go pay like 10 bucks or 20 bucks or whatever it was and people would run these showcases and they would invite casting directors and directors and i I did a lot of those and got in some little independent film you know just with one scene and then I, I started getting little bits and pieces here and there finally got an agent Tom and I got a literary agent they turned me on to a talent agency uh, Roe Diamond and Susie Schwartz were the women and I'll never forget them they're an agency called Century Artists and I'd get out on these little things. I never was very good at auditioning, but I, I got little parts on like Matlock and Knott's Landing and you know shows like yeah. that, and just a few lines on them. And then Tom and I sold a screenplay, or optioned a screenplay to David Geffen's film company at that time through this agent. And that's really kind of, that gave us enough money to actually be able to start mm-hmm. trying things, you know. And then ultimately we got a three picture deal with Disney and with Touchstone Pictures, and we wrote a script for them, and it never got made, but, and we wrote two or three that never got made, mm-hmm. but, you know, we're making money at yeah. it, and also doctored up a couple of scripts, you know, things like that, and we finally got One False Move, which was originally called Hurricane, mm-hmm. then we changed it to Star City, and then the studio people changed it to One False Move, and we hated the title right. at first. <laughs> we thought it sounded like a B-movie, <laughs> but... Roger Ebert really loved the movie. So back in those days, Roger Ebert was very good to yeah. us, and he, he liked us as writers, and then later really liked me as an actor. So we owed Roger a lot. We owed him a great debt. So, yeah, after One False Move, I was doing... It got us a name with the within the business, yeah. Not, yeah. not so much with the public. Right. At that point, were you thinking of yourself as having a likelier future as an actor or as a writer? You know, I, I didn't really think about it much, to tell you the truth. I was working more as an actor because, yeah. I mean, obviously writing takes a while and then it takes a while to get them made. So, And I had a lot more uh, fun as an actor, you know, and that's kind of what it seemed like I was, you know, more natural at. 
Writing, I was always great with characters and dialogue. Structure was my weakness usually, and Tom, that was Tom's strength. So we are like Jack Spratt and his yeah. wife, you know? So <laughs> it worked, it worked out. out okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, we kept writing scripts together, and I kept getting more parts and, you know, did some things here and there after One False Move. And I was moving up. I was becoming a working actor, but still not a real name. And then when I finally... My agent talked to these guys, these kids in New York that just had a little bit of money into making this movie that I directed, The Sling Blade. That's that's what kind of literally the next day, you know, everything changed. <laughs> and when you say these kids in New York, are we, are we talking about? The shooting gallery. The shooting gallery. Okay. Just to look again at the evolution of that, because that was such a big turning point. Childers, you've been doing since 86, so that was like 10 years earlier already. You had done this short in 94 that went to Sundance and involved the same character. But now, how do you convince, I guess it would have been Merrimax and the Weinsteins or whoever initially gives you the, the financing, how do you convince them not only to let you be in this movie that you've written, but also to direct it? Because, I mean, the, the great story everybody loves to refer back to is Stallone getting to, right. he wouldn't let anybody else star in his movie that he'd written, but he, even he didn't get to direct it. So how did you... How did that part of it come together where somebody was willing to finance it under those terms? Well, actually, Miramax just distributed it. They bought it for distribution. Okay. Uh, it was financed by the shooting gallery, and they okay. they had only done like one or two movies. I think one of the movies they'd done was for $60,000. <laughs> so they just were dealing with my agent, and my agent said, you ought to meet these guys because they, you know— they're not. They're sort of outside Hollywood, and you're kind of an outside Hollywood guy. So I think you get along. And they said, "Look, we don't have any money to pay directors, you know, or writers. But if you have anything you want to write and direct that you really want to star in and stuff, you know, we really love. They loved One False Move, and they said we we'll finance it, but we just can't pay you a bunch of money. But we'll give you fifty percent of it." Worked out. Which, uh, at the, which at that time, I thought right. well, it could be 50% right. of like $50. Right, right, you know? right. But meanwhile, you assembled an unbelievable cast of, of other people to, that bought into your idea. So how did that even, you know, like Duval, I know, since has become, seems like kind of a mentor. But how did he even come into the picture? Well, I knew him before. We Actually, he had the same agent over William Morris that I had, and he hooked us up. And Duvall wanted Tom and, and me to write a script for him, which we did, and it was made. Uh, and it was called A Family Thing. He did it with James Earl Jones. And so I knew I knew him, and I asked him if he wouldn't mind coming and doing this sort of cameo in the movie uh, in Sling Blade, and he said, sure, well. And then right after that, he did The Apostle and That's asked right. me to come do the same right. thing for him. Right. That that whole thing, in terms of the cast, there were, were just people that I knew. I mean, J.T. Walsh I knew from auditioning with him. I mean, you know, like I'd see him at auditions, and right. we kind of got friendly that way. And John Ritter, I'd done this TV show called Hearts of Fire right. with him, and Dwight Yoakam, I met through a mutual friend of ours uh, who was Dwight's manager at the time. And I'd seen Dwight in one movie. He'd only done, I think, one movie, mm-hmm. maybe two at the time, smaller parts. And I just thought he had something there, you know. You guys are still going still, at it with like this. my best uh, friend, yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, a long time, you know. And But, yeah, Miramax bought it. 
bought Sling Blade and, and distributed it. And without them, I mean, who knows? It could have no, nobody may have ever seen it, you know. So we're really lucky. But we made the movie that what what the shooting gallery financed it for was like nine hundred eighty thousand dollars. Oh my god. <laughs> Yeah. And it ended up, just to remind people, the, the context in which it goes out into the world, correct me if any of this is wrong, but basically this is the the heart of the indie boom. So you've got Miramax puts it out in, in I think, initially lim- quite limited release yeah, and then expanded it. Theaters, yeah. Gets very good reviews, costs less than a million, as you say, but gross nearly 25. And then the interesting thing is also, I guess, that was an early example of where screeners where maybe academy members were not going to necessarily go see it in the theater but right. you guys got them their vhs's and yeah. suddenly they watched it it was easy enough to just pop that in and they got very much on board so could you ever have imagined that this little movie that right. you know nobody was not on anybody's radar suddenly is nominated you're nominated for best actor best adapted screenplay just the life that this all took on must have even yeah. taking you a little bit of that. Oh, I I didn't expect it at all. I thought I really made the movie just for my myself and my friends, my family. Yeah, I thought those were the people who would see it. And you know who helped us out a lot? It was so funny because other actors and directors were coming on talk shows at that time promoting their movies, right. and they had seen it. Oh, so they liked they'd it. seen either screeners or they'd been to a screening right. of of right. it. You know, because Miramax would screen it. Right. You know, for different groups and. I remember Julie Roberts and uh, Mel Gibson were doing, I think it might have been Larry King. I can't remember what show Mm -hmm. it was. I think it was Larry King. Mm -hmm. And they just kept talking about Sling Blade. (laughs) And so it was like, wow, thanks, guys. And uh, so, you know, those kind of things get it out there to people, get the word out there. If if other people like it and they mention it, you know, uh, and I try to do that sometimes. If I see a young artist of any type, whether it's a musician or an actor or filmmaker or a movie you know and, and you can mention it during your thing it's it really helps and yeah. i remember ron howard did the same thing for it ron had seen it either at a screening or on a screener and and ron was on some talk show talking about it so you know it just got a buzz about it and then once it was nominated for the best actor and for screenplay then that's when I started getting calls from people like Gregory Peck and Elizabeth Taylor and Marlon Brando. And I, just, I couldn't believe it. I had no idea what was happening to me. Well, before we move on from, from Sling Blade, I guess I just, the obvious question that I didn't ask is, what was it about this, this character and this story that intrigued you enough to stick with it for a decade to see it through all of, the, all of these hurdles that we've been talking about? What, why was this a story you wanted to tell so, so much? Well, I, I was raised on Southern literature, and that's the way I write. And it was just a story that I loved and a character that I loved. And it was, you know, partly truth, partly fiction. And I don't know. It's, it's like any, anything anybody writes. It's like when I would read things like Tobacco Road or Grapes of Wrath or any of those kind of things. Those, those were the stories that got to me, and I wanted to write my own stories like that. I had read something where you were just having a bad day one day and you look in the mirror and this posture and the voice and everything it just oh, like yeah. came to you. Is that true? Yeah, the face, the facial thing and the voice came to me when I was working on a cable movie or something. I had like one scene and it was really hot. I was wearing a wool conductor's uniform and I started making faces at myself <laughs> in the mirror because I looked so stupid. And I made that that voice and everything. So that that part of it came from me self-loathing in the, in the mirror. Yeah. So you win the 
Oscar, I just rewatched the acceptance speech this morning on YouTube because I was wondering, you know, just to remember how what you said, what it, how it all went. I mean, that was a very popular result. People, I think you got a standing ovation. I was curious why you thanked Elizabeth Taylor. Was it just that she had reached out? She did very early on, and she really took me under her wing and made me part of the group that hung out, hung out at her house and wow. everything. She was very kind to me. I used to go over to her house and just sit and talk to her and. Sometimes nobody would be there. Sometimes there'd be a lot of people there. And like I said, through that whole group I met, you know, I got to know Gregory Peck mm-hmm. and his family very well. And Roddy McDowell, another guy, really kind to me during those days. And, and yeah, and Brando called me, wanted me to come to his house. And I was <laughs> really nervous, but I did it. That's you, know, awesome. you, you can't pass up yeah. on that. And uh, <laughs> so then he started calling me every now and then. We'd talk on the phone. And yeah, I, th- I thanked Elizabeth Taylor because she. I mean, you know, when you're a kid, you see Elizabeth Taylor, she was like this matinee idol, you know. She was, uh, you know, you can't believe you're even talking. It's like talking to, you think you're talking to Bugs Bunny. It's like you don't even think she's real, you know. (laughs) And all of a sudden you know her. And I just wanted to thank her because I couldn't believe I was swept up in all that and that she was so kind to me. Was there any downside to this, what must have felt like very sudden and was very sudden, change in your life of suddenly being a person who many, many people knew, whereas just a few months earlier, I guess pre-Telluride is where it all started. It was a very different existence. So how did you handle it all? Was it smooth or was there a downside to it? I think the downside to it started to come later. I mean, in the beginning, it was all fun and games. (laughs) (laughs) The longer you're famous, the the, the less fun it, it is. I mean, believe me, I appreciate it. I mean, I still to this day appreciate it. And I, and fans, I'm all for them. Right. I mean, you got to have your fans. And people, a lot of friends of mine, they say, why do you stand there and take pictures of people for so long or sign all those things? I say, well, those are the people that put my kids through school. You right. know, it's like they... You owe it to them. And, nice. and, you know, I mean, the paparazzi thing, you know, at certain times in my life has been kind of a, you know, pain in the ass. Well, so <laughs> if without uh, without belaboring the, <laughs> well, the two little, I guess you could say, maybe hiccups, things that probably did not bring wonderful, wonderful things with them were two years after Sling Blade, the first time that as a famous person, you'd had a a movie that didn't go as well as you would have probably liked was Armageddon? I mean, Armageddon was actually fine. Armageddon went very well. I mean, I, I, I loved doing it. You know, sometimes I'll put down, you know, big splashy movies and right. that kind of thing. But, I mean, this was the first time. It's like my manager at the time, who's still my manager, he said, he said you got to do movies that get your picture on a bus yeah. stop. Yeah. And I actually had a very great experience making Armageddon, and I, and I think that movie holds up to this no, day. I, I, I get, I yeah. enjoy it, but I'm, I'm but, saying more like where you just come off a movie that was sort of universally embraced by. Oh, critics. I see what Every, you're saying. Here's yeah, a yeah, movie yeah. that and, took and, some flack. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I guess the good news about a movie like that is, is they don't usually get on the actor as much as they right. do the director in <laughs> <and> the studio. <laughs> so that's true. You know, I mean, I got good reviews from it. So I guess yeah. you know, when you're when you're in something like that, you if if you come out of it okay, then I guess that's the best you can hope for. And, but and you're already on to the next thing anyway. Uh, by the time you are, yeah. Which but, in your case was some simple plan was which was another Oscar nomination. So it couldn't have been. Yeah, and I'd I'd done Primary Colors right before. Armageddon, right. which was you know pretty well, well received, yeah. and I, I got a, you know a lot. I got some awards for that. So it, 
it kind of continued all through that period of time, you know. And then, you know, I would do, it's like with anybody, you do two or three movies in a row that are very well received and you got one that's not and then you got one that makes money but is not well received and you got one that doesn't make money and <laughs> is well received I mean it's you got all kinds you just you weather know, it. And then, but yeah. when you hit those that are that have everything right. it's pretty incredible yeah, right. you know yeah <laughs> I, I guess the other thing that you may have been referring to there where where the paparazzi started to potentially be a little annoying would have been the result in a way of so you do this movie in 99, Pushing 10, and I guess that was the beginning of you and Miss Jolie. Right. And you then are, that period when you're married for like three or four years, right. uh, you were very much in the public eye. Sure. What was the impact of that as far as professionally? Do you think that, it seems like some people were just a little bewildered by all of it. And as you look back now, what do you make of that whole era? Always, oh, It was a great and fun time for yeah. me. I mean, you know, she and I are still friends and... Yeah. and you know, we just had separate, different views yeah. on our lifestyle. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, she's she's more worldly person than I am. I'm more of a you know guy that sticks around the house, you know, unless I'm working. But we had a we had a great time. Yeah, I mean the paparazzi stuff. I, I wasn't used to that so much, and that, and that was something to deal with. We'd known each other, you know, before we did the movie because we had the same manager, and uh, you know, I knew her when she was, you know, fairly, we were just kind of starting out, right. you know, really, and. And we're pals, and so we, we knew enough about each other before we did Pushing 10, really, that we could have a sense of humor about stuff. Right. Yeah, I guess we did. We must have done that in 97, actually, I think. Okay. But it came out, I think it's listed as 98 or 99. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I look back on those times very fondly. Yeah. I really do. And uh, even, the, even the paparazzi stuff, it was... <laughs> It was kind of silly, some of the stuff they would say, but, you know, we would just laugh about it usually. Just a very brief follow-up and then moving on from that, but, like, with some of the stuff that they tended to harp on, whether it was the, the you know, the little vials things or whatever, right. the tattoos, do you see why they harped on that stuff? Like, what was that about? Well, with the, with the press in general, the, you know, people always want to latch on to something. It's like, how, what's, the, what's the sound bite or what's the... Thing you say. I remember a friend of mine who was an actress once said, they asked her what it was like working with a certain director, and she said it, it was kind of like being on Jupiter. And then Jupiter, oh, that sounds good. Let's write that down. And the next thing you know, all the articles of her, it felt like being on Jupiter. So you know, you hear blood vial. The next thing you know, we were vampires. We lived in the basement <laughs> or in the, of a castle somewhere, and all this stuff. I mean. They take they would take things and make them into more than they were simply because that intrigued them and it, would, and it gave them a good in you know to a story and the stuff was really much more boring and n- normal than what they made it sound like but it's all part of the legend as they say yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean so, so, so we, it didn't bug us that much so for you the the thing I think that was important to you was to get back to directing mm-hmm. and then maybe more frustrating than any paparazzi or anything else was was what you had to deal with once you you make the movie you want to make with people that you want to make it with with all the pretty horses this adaptation of Cormac McCarthy right. and back with the Weinsteins and right. I guess it just did not go as as you would have hoped well if it, I guess if it weren't such a public thing you know it probably wouldn't have been looked at the way it was I mean you know the movie we put out was a good movie and it's just that the movie we made was a better movie I mean, if, if we do, do say so ourselves, uh, and I include the whole bunch who made it, mm-hmm. we made something really special. 
And I understand the economics. You know, they wanted it much shorter and everything. But it was never what it was in the in the papers. You know, there was never any like five hour cut or whatever they talked about. <laughs> that never existed. Right. I think my final cut was like two hours and forty two minutes. And, and so they just cut uh, it and, to two. Uh, cut it to just under two. I think it's an hour fifty nine. And it was a co production with yeah. Miramax and Sony. And you know, in, in fairness to studios, it's their money, and it's their movie and. I was asked to do the movie by Mike Nichols, actually, you know, because he was a producer on it and everything. And, you know, it turned out to be a good movie that just didn't it didn't do well. And But for you, the frustration was that it wasn't sold as what it was. It was promoted as a love story. They right. changed the score, things that were integral to what you wanted it to be. The, yeah, those are the kind of things, more, more so than even the length. I mean, the things that really got me about that movie were the fact that it that Daniel Lanois' incredibly haunting score was taken out. And Marty Stewart uh, did the score, who did a great job. You know, at least they let me pick another one of my guys to do it, but they wanted bigger music for a bigger movie. But the, the thing Dan did was really haunting, and it was one of those beautiful things I ever heard. And also, yeah, they, they promoted it. I think Titanic was so big yeah, yeah. that every poster was supposed to be the guy and the girl all airbrushed and staring <laughs> at each other. And they tried to make it into, you know, the, the movie was sold as a love story between Matt and Penelope, and that's really not what it was. Was the whole ordeal with this something that, that was frustrating enough that you're, you didn't want to, directing was not something you were to rush right yeah, back I, into? Yeah, I tucked my tail between my legs and, and didn't direct again for a long time. Right, yeah. and, but... I guess, you know, the, the acting was never a more amazing year than, than the year after after that movie, where could there be more different movies than you do the Coen's Man Who Wasn't There, which is essentially like film noir. You do Bandits with for Barry Levinson, which is a comedy. Mm. And you do Monsters Ball, a drama for, I think it was first time Mark Forster was making yeah, movie. Right. And all in a year. I mean, what a... what a showcase in one year. That was a wonderful period of time. That, that actually threw... Starting with Bandits and going through Man Who Wasn't There and Monsters Ball through like uh, the first Bad Santa mm-hmm. and the Alamo, in terms of the experience and what, how my life felt at that time, was, uh, it's hard to beat that, that period of time. What made it just the, the partnership, the collaborations, or, or just that things were just clicking on all cylinders? Things clicked on all cylinders. The only one of those that wasn't really successful was the Alamo. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's a gigantic movie and everything. And there was, I think there was some newspaper versus studio fighting going on at, the same, at that time. And so they kind of killed it before it even came out. And they would, you know, I think certain papers put out that their movie was in trouble and all this stuff. And that affects people, affects the audience. Yeah. And also, I just, I don't think people are as interested in history as they used to be. You know, I, I mean... I don't know a lot of you know twenty year olds are going to the theater, right. and I don't I don't know how many of them really knew what the Alamo was or cared. Even you know? the nineteen sixty John Wayne one had a hard time, so sure, it was already absolutely. yeah. The Alamo's always <laughs> been a story that they, they keep making and it never quite right. <laughs> quite takes off. But the experience of making it was a, a wonderful one, and I loved working with John Lee Hancock and mm-hmm. all the actors and being there in Texas doing it. And all the historians said that we got it right. That's a, so that's a, that that's meant something. a lot to us, yeah. you know. And we should not leave out one that was in that mix as well with those others. Love Actually is oh, yeah. probably gets seen more than yeah. all other movies combined. Love Actually <laughs> yeah. plays a lot. Yeah, we we actually in my deal made it a, a, a thing where they wouldn't have me in, involved in any of the press for it or the that you didn't poster. Have to do it. 
Well, in other words, that we wanted it to be a surprise ah, that I was I playing the president. Right. So as a result, I'm not listed on the movie or I anything it. else. Right, right. It's like, hey, you know, this rascal will just show up as the president, you know. But that was a lot of fun to do. Yeah. I loved wor- working with Hugh and Martina McCutcheon. She was uh, just good people. And Richard Curtis, terrific. And I, I had a good time. First time working in England as an actor. Yeah. Uh, I've been there on sets before, but it was my first time working there as an actor. And I loved, loved being there and doing that and working over there at... Shepperton Studios, which I'd seen on so many movies yeah. when I was a kid, yeah. you know, it was it was great. You just mentioned Bad Santa, and it seems like first of all that itself was kind of underestimated, and then it became this this nice big hit. But it also sparked what seems like a few, like a, a little mini era of grumpy SOBs. Is that right? I mean, if yeah. you think about yeah. Bad News Bears and Mister Woodcock and some of these, is that a kind of character that you get a kick out of playing? Well, yeah, I do. Uh, Those are fun. They always are. I I love doing Bad News Bears and Woodcock also. And then also spawn some others, you know, that I wasn't in, you know. They had bad teacher, bad grandpa, (laughs) bad, you know, plumber. You should uh, be getting royalties on these. You'd think so, yeah. Yeah. Those are fun characters. But, you know, sometimes if you have something that's a hit, like Bad Santa was, the thinking in Hollywood is like, hey, that was successful. Let's do another one, right. you know. So, so all of a sudden, they will, every time there's a well, that kind of character, right. they call you. Uh, <laughs> so I did a couple more, and I thought that was enough. Yeah. You know. <laughs> one other thing that I I guess after the after the experience that you'd had with all the pretty horses, that was back in two thousand. More than a decade goes by. You you've let it lie with directing. Then you. I guess finally decide, all right, it's enough time has passed and you're ready. It seems like you would have maybe just built yourself up to deal with all of that again. And then you have to deal with kind of a heartbreaking situation again with with just the whole experience there in 2012, Jane Mansfield's car. Yeah. Why does this happen to people who are, you know, it's not like you're an inexperienced guy or not. You've seen all this. Why do you have to even you have to deal with this crap? Well, it's because of the kind of things uh, I choose to do sometimes. I mean, you know, if I wanted to go out and direct Star Trek or something, I'd have a hit probably because people, it's got a built-in audience. I I don't know that I'm that relevant as a director anymore because, like I said, my stuff's based on Southern literature, and I just don't know if that's, I may may be obsolete as a writer-director these days. Because those are the kinds of stories I want to tell. And, you know, the thing that happened with Jane Mansfield, a Russian company financed it. We had a hard time getting it financed, and they were big fans, and they wanted to do it. And they gave us the budget we needed, and they were really good to us. And it was a company that had—it wasn't just like an independent financier from there. It was a guy who actually had done a lot of humanitarian documentaries and all kinds of stuff, you know. And so there were film people, and— and they loved the script, and they totally got it, which I thought was kind of odd that they got it, and you know, <laughs> no, actually, nobody around here did. And but, not only them, but you was playing at international film festival Berlin and oh stuff. Oh yeah, that. went to Berlin. Yeah, I mean, it, it was one of those movies where uh, it's funny how you know a blogger or two can kill a movie instantly at a film festival. You know, when they go in, they go, "Hey, I didn't like this." And then Do you think thing, that's what happened? Well, I saw a couple of guys with backpacks running out after about <laughs> 10 minutes of the movie. You know what I mean? But they're usually people that don't like you to start with. But right. And then there are plenty of people that those kind of folks who have their own little website mm-hmm. or whatever they do that, that really help you. Yeah. So and, and I like to think that there are probably more of those than there, than there are bad ones who just, you know, got to be up their ass about you. But <laughs> I mean, the thing that happened with Jane Mansfield was simply that, you know, it's a movie that, 
if I'd made that movie back when I made Sling Blade, it would, it would have been a success. But this is beyond that independent film renaissance and, and beyond the time when those kind of movies were getting good distribution and everything. And we didn't have a Miramax behind us or anything. So, And these days, just, that, that kind of content, is it really only survives maybe in pay cable and streaming? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. If, if I had made that for Amazon, maybe it would have been okay. Right. But nobody ever saw it, and it, it didn't get any kind of play. And it was, you know, it was a heartbreak because we loved that movie. Mm-hmm. And, and now, it, it happens all the time with these kind of movies. Later on, when they do play it on cable and people stuff, and then people love it, yeah. <laughs> and they come up to you all the time and say, oh, I love that movie. But, you know, you can't get many people in the theater with those little movies like that anymore. So, yeah, that was a shame. And I'm not saying I'll never direct again, but I like directing. I don't like doing it that often because yeah. it takes up a lot of your, your life, yeah. you know. And uh, from the time of conception to the time you finish it up and publicize it and everything, it takes a year, a year and a half out of your life. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll see if there's anything that I want to tell again and never know. Yeah. One other thing that's certainly changed since even, you know, since Sling Blade, let's say, which is only 21 years ago, is that somebody who's established themselves as a as a name in movies, it used to be you would never dream of going and doing television, right? right. And now it's the cool thing to do. And yeah. you first did it with Fargo, I think, mm-hmm. which was so well-received and, and has spawned its own reincarnations now but what was it in your thought process that that led you there well i was a late comer to it because i still you know i came up as an actor in the in, in the 80s so back then if you were doing tv you were a tv guy right. you know and now the independent film business is on premium cable and streaming and all that that's where it lives yeah. and now that's where everybody who you know, considers themselves some type of artist, or you, or you really want to do good work, you know, that's where you go. Mm-hmm. The movie studios still make some really good movies, but they make a lot of big event movies, and that ha- hasn't really been my bread and butter. Mm-hmm. So I don't get called that much for the big movies anyway, and once in a blue moon I do, and I just feel maybe I'm not right for the part, you know, I, and don't really have a lot of interest in playing like the mayor in, in some superhero movie or something <laughs> like that. You know, I'm too old to play the superhero. and Yeah, I mean, doing Goliath with Amazon and doing Fargo with FX, it's, it's been a wonderful thing. I'm able to do a 10-hour independent film now, yeah, and that's that's what everybody's doing. I mean, you... Like off the top of your head, how many film actors are doing this stuff now? I mean, everybody wants to do it. Yeah, it's amazing. With Fargo, just before we move on from that, this was a guy who's essentially, I guess it would, you'd say a, a hitman who's sort of like the like the devil and your character, Lauren. And I just wonder, you hadn't really played an out-and-out bad guy in many years, really probably since One False Move. Right. You know, what what did you make of the experience of, first of all, just playing somebody over the course of 10 hours or whatever it was with with Fargo? I mean, that's what do you do differently? What can you do differently as far as your job and shading things and doing things? Is it is it it different than doing a, a movie for the actor? Not really. I approach everything as a movie, you know, and now that it is that way with the with the Amazons and FXs and all those, it just gives you an opportunity to do a movie and stay in a movie mindset and yet reach all these people with it. I'd say in terms of the actual work uh, as an actor, 
the only difference is is that it gives you a longer time to develop a character, uh, and it's good for the audience too. You can't make a ten-hour independent film and show it at the theater, but wow, now you got the opportunity to actually do that. Right, and people might yeah. watch it in one day the way they, it goes they, now. Exactly, yeah. and most people I know will at least watch it uh, at you know two or three yeah. episodes at a time, and. Uh, Usually we'll watch it all within a week or so. Some people, like you said, watch the whole thing. <laughs> but at the end of a movie that's an hour and 45 minutes or whatever, sometimes you wish you could just keep playing that character. Yeah. Or just think of all the other possibilities. And in this world, you get to. Some so. writers have said that the other thing that, that is freeing about doing TV in, in long format like this is that you don't have to make... You don't have to win over the audience for, with the character. It doesn't have to be likable or, you know, whatever for a long time, if at all. Is that something that you think about as well that, you know, the, I mean, we are people say this is like the era of the TV antihero. So many of these guys are not likable. And yet yeah. people are on board enthusiastically for years and years with the shows. Sure. Yeah, it's amazing to be able to do that and be received by the audience that way. I mean, because they can see that. uh you know, you have to have everything in a movie or a TV show. You got to have the bad guy, and you got to have the neighbor and the good guy, the hero, or whatever it is. And a lot of times in movies, people do tend to pay more attention to the hero. You know, and for some reason in this, I guess they're realizing this is such an integral part of the of the show. This is an, a character you really need, and, and you don't you want anything to happen to him because you want this mystery to keep going, right. you know. And I know people who love Lauren Malvo. <laughs> I mean, they, they, you know, it's the favorite character in the thing. And right. they, but also, I think a lot of that was because of the sort of the dark humor in it too. You know, you, you see that. I mean, just like with David Lynch's stuff or uh, the Coen Brothers mm-hmm. or. Uh, Jim Jarmusch, you know, people like that, and people that I've always admired, you know, that made movies like that. You know, now they got the new Twin Peaks going know, on again, which is pretty, uh, pretty nice. And you mentioned Jarmusch. We should say you did Dead Man with him twenty yeah, two years ago. Yeah, I even remember that. Yeah. I you know, went out there for a couple of nights right. in the middle of the desert somewhere right. and you know, played that weird character. Yeah, Lauren Malvo was an interesting character to play. I loved it, and what was great about it was I. You could read the scripts, and, you, and there was never a moment as the writer in me that wanted to change anything. You know, I mean, I, the way I played the character might have been a little different than what uh, what they'd originally uh, thought. Maybe uh, you know, you bring your own bits and pieces to it. But in terms of the writing, I mean, I, I just went and did it. Well, people loved that. Obviously, Golden Globe there for that, and and all kinds of other acclaim and accolades. Was was that experience with Fargo? instrumental in making you decide to go on and soon after do Goliath or was that already in the picture Fargo absolutely influenced me when I was offered Goliath there's no question I thought wow this was a great experience and I loved the character in Goliath so I thought how lucky am I that I get to go into another character and in this format and do it again I, I, I love every minute of it and what was it about Goliath in which you're we should remind, or people who haven't yet had a chance to see it, it I, I'm, I've loved it. It's your playing a guy named Billy. I'd seen it just for years in interviews. You'd said you were always kind of intrigued by the idea of playing a lawyer. Yeah. You did it in sort of a cameo in The Judge, where you were again with Duval. But right. what, what is it about a, playing a lawyer that, that appealed to you? Well, I think lawyers and actors have a, have a real 
similarity, you know. I mean, uh, lawyers kind of have to be actors in a courtroom. Lawyers always made a good part for an actor, you know, whether it was Spencer Tracy or Gregory Peck, any of these guys, you know, when we watch the old movies. A lawyer has to give a performance. Mm -hmm. And sometimes actors have to be lawyers, (laughs) you know, (laughs) when you're dealing with, you know, the brass or whatever, you know. But, yeah, it's it's a great part to play, lawyers. I don't know. It, It puts you on a pretty terrific stage so for anybody who ever would want to know what I'd be like as a lawyer this is kind of <laughs> it because I when I read this script I thought wow that is kind of what I, I, I relate to this guy and so if I were a lawyer yeah, this uh, would be you. <laughs> and I kind of feel like one now I, you know after doing this for a while but right. I kind of play this character as myself in a lot of ways well that was that was something I was really interested to come across because if maybe we can break down some of the ways that you actually relate personally to this guy, apart from sharing a name. For one thing, I, I'd read you you like living in hotels. This guy lives in a hotel. Yeah, that's right. And the other thing is you, you, you've you said you don't like schmoozing, small talk stuff. Here was the actual quote. Quote, I don't like to be alone, but I don't like to be with people. Close quote. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, this is a guy who essentially treats as his office a bar. So he's out there with everybody, but yeah. they don't, you know, stay away, basically, right? Yeah. What else do we have? He's not really going to put up with much bullshit. I've heard that that may apply to you as well. In certain instances, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, am I missing anything else? Well, I mean, I think I have a sense of justice that doesn't necessarily go by the norm. You know, I, I mean, we have rules and we have to have rules, you know, and I respect that. But at the same time, the law is not always fair. Mm-hmm. And I think that this guy loves the law, and he loves being a a lawyer, and yet he tries to do it in a way that you can have actual justice in it, you know, where it's not always... He's not just out there to trick people uh, to to win his case, but there's something thrilling about it to him. You know, he, he does like to win. I think in his heart, he only wants to win when he's right. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of feel that. He also seems to, in his own way, champion other underdogs. I mean, if you look at the sure. people that he's surrounding himself with, the, I guess you would say, Hooker and some right. of those other people. I mean, these sure. are, they actually, he gives them a chance and they often perform. Yeah. So I mean, it's like as a director, I always like to cast people that you normally wouldn't or right. give somebody a chance who's not famous or somebody who hasn't even been in a movie or whatever you know and uh, yeah this guy kind of likes to (laughs) he doesn't want to be in there with a bunch of other you know arrogant stuffy rich lawyer guys you know it's like he finds these couple of gals it's like you know come work with me you know we'll be all right well in the larger billy bob thornton ooh it's not inconsistent if with a lot of the the great roles because you've played a lot of guys who are quote a guy who on the surface appears to be one thing, and yet he's really another, close quote. That's something that you've right. said in instances well before Goliath. Sure. Why might that be? Well, I just think I think people, no matter who it is, you know, on the surface, I just think we judge people pretty quickly. And this is, a, and particularly this day and time, it's a very judgmental society we live in. And I always like to see the the person who... At the end of the day, you find out, wow, there's a lot more to them than, than you thought. You know, giving people the benefit of the doubt and a, a chance. And, you know, sometimes people from the underbelly of life, you never know why they're there. I always like to explore those people. And people who are trying to redeem themselves or 
make something out of themselves or stay afloat, whatever it is, you know, and those are more interesting people to play. I mean, who wants to play somebody who doesn't have any flaws and who, you know, is perfect and came up the easy way? I mean, that's, to me, it doesn't interest me. Right. We should note season one of Goliath, it's been out for a while now. You get another Golden Globe for that. It was great and a nice way to highlight a show when there's 450 scripted series out there. Oh, I yeah. mean, it seems to be a nice way to tell people this is one worth looking at and back for the second season how far into it are you at the moment like which episode uh, are you we're doing? on the first episode first episode yeah, today. We're, yeah we're we're actually shooting day seven today we have a uh, good fortune to have walter hill directing it oh, you know wow. great yeah, film director you know and he's uh, directing the first episode here so it's been really interesting because he and i tried to work together before years ago he had wow. a movie that never came about and we talked about it we used to be neighbors uh you know we lived down the uh, at least within a few blocks of each yeah. other. So we tried to get this movie made. And years and years ago, I think back in the 80s sometime, I auditioned for a voice part in a movie that he was doing wow. where they needed just a little bit of uh, looping work done because yeah. <laughs> I guess an actor wasn't available right. for it or whatever. And I did three or four lines for him. He, he picked me out, all these guys there. <laughs> And I told him about it, and he didn't remember this it. This was pre, yeah. like, Sling Blade and oh, all that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. This was, like, in, uh, yeah, in the 80s sometime. And <laughs> yeah. I went in to audition my voice. And, and the movie took place in Texas, so he goes, yeah, this boy's good. Just use him. And he said, well, there's a lot of other people out there. And he goes, tell him to go home. I got my guy. Right. <laughs> and I just did three or four lines, you know, That's so for funny. him, yeah. So I guess, finally, where does it go from here? This show could go response to it could go on for years are you up for years more of of this particular character in this show and and then just big picture is there you know here we are 21 years again after sling blade where which opened up a whole new world i guess for you what have you not yet gotten to do that you still want to do I don't know. I, I kind of like the mystery of it, you know. We'll see. I know that I'm going to keep touring with the Boxmasters. I'm going to keep making records with them. And I know I'm going to do Goliath for this season, and hopefully we'll do well enough to where we can do another one. The great thing about it is that I can do Goliath and still have time to do a movie in there and do a tour and make a record. So if I do one movie and Goliath and make a record and do a tour every year that's a pretty full life especially when you got three kids <laughs> you know i'm because uh Keeps you know, busy. yeah my boys are 20 22 and 23 and they're you know, of course they got their own lives right. and their own apartments and that stuff you know but then my daughter bella is going to be 13 in september so are any of them following in your path here uh willie my oldest son yeah. i have with my daughter i have a scientist and writer Okay. That's what she uh, wants to be. Right. And Harry oh. is interested in, like, security and police work and that kind of stuff. And then Willie, he works in special effects. He builds zombies and vampires and, you know, all, uh, he just worked on some Klingons recently. And <laughs> So, yeah, he does he does uh, special effects makeup oh, and that kind great. of stuff. Well, you must be very proud, and yeah, I, I thank you very much for doing this. Thank, thank you for having me. Time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today. 
at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.